Good morning. Today is Sunday, May the 10th, 2015. It is Mother's Day. We're at the First United Methodist Church of Fountain Valley, California, through the Bible Sunday School class. We've been really spending some time in Daniel chapter 11. This period of time between the fall of the Judean Empire, the southern kingdom of Judah, their Babylonian exile, followed by the fact that they would never really have a kingdom again until the birth of the true son of David, the king of kings. Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you today that you would help us to understand what it means when your people suffer, Lord, and it's all by divine hand and it's all working towards an eternal purpose that we would not be shaken by world events, by the rising and falling of kingdoms, but that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, who shall be revealed at the appointed time at the consummation of the age. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, back to your brief little history here. <clears throat> if we remember in Daniel chapter 10, an angel, a very imposing spiritual epiphany, was happening to Daniel. His friends couldn't see the person speaking to Daniel, but it said they were very afraid and they ran away. Okay, And he talked about how he had been resisted, this angel, for 21 days by the prince of Persia. And uh, Daniel chapter 10 opens that it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the, the uh, Persian Empire followed the Babylonian Empire. And if you can remember the handwriting on the wall story, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Bel uh, Belshazzar, it's really confusing because Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, which was sort of an uh, insult because he was named after the false god, Bel, the god of that region. And uh, they took his Hebrew name away from him. But um, so anyways, it was uh, Cyrus's reign. And, and of course, Cyrus was the king under which the proclamation was made foretold in Isaiah 45 that Cyrus, the anointed one, and he gives the word for the people to go back, okay, that they can go back. And so we have already studied Ezra and Nehemiah, and we understand a little bit about that time frame, that they went back to build a kingdom, I mean, a tabernacle again, and it took a long time, and they had a lot of uh, struggles with the people in the land and a lot of inciting and conflict. And remember, they were building the wall and the temple with sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. And so that's the time frame here. Because uh, if you remember the final glories of the Babylonian Empire, we've got this King Belshazzar having a big old party with his wives and concubines, and they get this very sacrilegious idea. To go get the golden vessels that came out of the sanctuary that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the vessels of worship. And they brought them into this orgy they were having and thought it would be a big deal. It really, what they were doing is they were going this to God. That's what they were doing. And God said, Well, if you want a little of that? I'll give you some. <laughs> and he died right after that, Belshazzar did. And um, the, the, the Medes and, and the Persians take over. And so in Daniel 10, if you'll remember, he's 
has a strength completely gone out of him. He's already been praying and fasting. It even said that he didn't use lotions. I have to tell you, I'd be a dried up prune if for 21 days I didn't even use lotion. <laughs> and then this angel came and he said he'd been prevented for 21 days. So think about it. The whole time Daniel is fasting and praying, there's a spiritual battle going on with the angels. And uh, so he says, you know, that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. That's 1013. And then he, Daniel said he became mute, you know, and he, he tells this angel, please strengthen me. I, I, I have no strength. I can't receive what you're trying to give me. And then at the end of 10, it says that he was strengthened. And he says, now let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Daniel practically said, I need to hear this, but I have no physical strength. We forget how frail flesh really is. And, you know, as you age, you kind of get it because <laughs> yeah. things are not working so well anymore. But you see it in young people. They have so much vim and vi you know, vigor. They just think it's going to always be that way, that they're never going to have a frail period in their life. And so <clears throat> if you had the heavenly vision, you would realize flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit. And so uh, Daniel is strengthened. And then the angel says, I have to return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And we're going to, you know, that's, that's Alexander the Great and that whole period. But I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And we talked last week that there's a book of written truth, this part, but God's word is actually greater than the Bible. And that's the scroll with the part we've not been allowed to see yet. And remember in Revelation, who is worthy to open the scroll? So you recognize that there are written words of God that we don't have right now. And every once in a while, like in here, he lets humans have a little bit of the picture that others don't have. Because the angel's going to tell Daniel, I'm telling you things are going to happen in the future to your people. And Daniel, I think, was of such character. Uh, you know, he was called a man greatly loved and highly esteemed by God, that God chose him to be the one that would receive the vision. But it was hard for Daniel because it was so overwhelming. And the responsibility to know things like that that are going to come up, it's really huge. We think it'd be so great to know the future, but if the Lord really appeared to you and kind of told you what was going to happen, you would be a little weak in the knees, if not flat and prostate the way Daniel was. Okay? So as we open at chapter 11, it says, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, okay, so now we've moved on from Cyrus, it says, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And this is that angel. And now I will show you the truth. So Daniel's going to receive some special revelation here. So as we think about prophecy, there is that belief, and I kind of think it's probably right, that with the birth of Christ, you see that we don't have prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel anymore, or any of the minor prophets. It was a season in the Lord that came to a close. And remember, Jesus said, I am fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And the last great prophet really was John the Baptist. And then we don't have that today. We don't see God raising up people like that. Because how is God moving and working today by his spirit? 
through the body of Christ. This is the age of the church. And um, so anyways, he's now going to receive understanding of what's going to have one to happen one to 200 years from now, from the time he's receiving this in the first year of Darius the Mede. He said, I'm going to show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. He's trying to tell him that this Persian empire isn't going to stand any more than the Babylonian one did. And when uh, a king has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is Alexander the Great. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And then from those four kingdoms that break up out of this quick rise and fall of Alexander, who doesn't even have a son to give his kingdom to. We had, as we learned last week, some generals and a soldier that take over. And Asia Minor, Macedon, Greece, Egypt, and um, Syria. Those are the four winds, the four divisions. Asia Minor and Syria combined quite quickly to become one kingdom. And so we have Macedon, Syria, Asia Minor, and Egypt. And in the middle between Syria and Asia Minor and Egypt is Judea. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a very, very difficult time for God's people. And God is going to give these kings some leeway to really persecute the people of God. So you think they're coming out of Babylon. How bad could it get? It doesn't get that much better. It stays difficult all the way to the birth of Christ. They never have their kingdom again. The high priest and those that serve in the temple tend to be those that rise to positions of authority. And we see that at the birth of Christ because it was the religious leaders and rulers and Caiaphas, the high priest, the ones that had any authority over the Jews because they were under Roman rule. Okay. So this little four kingdom spot in history is going to very quickly give way to the Roman empire. And if you'll remember all the previous visions of Daniel, this Roman empire was going to be gigantic crushing. Remember it will crush everything out of its feet. But then its own demise, if you can remember the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, was the toes. And remember, there was clay mixed with iron. And the Roman Empire was so diverse, in the end, it almost undid them because they were not unified. And then they, that their leaders, the, the Caesars, the emperors, um, remember these uh, special horns that grew up that Daniel saw. It became very divided and really kind of imploded itself. And they were very given to a lot of lusts and stuff. And there's even science now that they think the Romans got kind of crazy because of their plumbing even. They had lead pipes. Remember the yes. Romans built the aqueducts and everything, but there were things they just didn't know yet about minerals and metals and stuff. So they're thinking that some of their plumbing was lead pipes and that, you know, Nero had to be whacked out. I mean, setting Rome on fire and everything. The guy was nuts. Yeah. But as we read about these kings in chapter 11, they're all sociopaths, all of them. Whatever served their purpose, they did. They could kill anybody they wanted to. There was a lot of poisoning going on. <laughs> you know, the cupbearer, oh, yeah. 
existed for a reason. If anybody's going to die, it's going to be the cupbearer, not the king. Okay, and uh, so and some of them, even their own domestics, rose up against them. So you didn't know who you could trust. It might be the little girl bringing you your supper. Okay, that might be the one that's going to do you in. So we have these four kingdoms, and this is a very rough time. And this kingdom of the north, Syria, Asia Minor, kingdom of the south. So um, just going to go, because some of this is repeat, real quickly. There was the first Ptolemy of Egypt, and the second Ptolemy called Philadelphus. And Philadelphus has a daughter, and her name is Bernice, okay? And if you'll remember the... Um, they gave the daughter to Antiochus Theos, kingdom of Syria, and uh, he divorced his first wife, the mother of his children, Laodicea. And um, it was an unjust divorce, of course, and it was all politically uh, posturing to have him take Bernice and supposedly a treaty between Egypt and Syria, which never occurred. But... Um, Antiochus and Bernice, the second wife, have a son, and then Antiochus, is, Antiochus dies. And Antiochus's sons by his first wife, Laodicea, are Seleucus, this all the Seleucus is Callinicus, and uh, the uh, Antiochus Hyrax, who was prefect of Asia. Two sons. So they murder Bernice, okay? And actually, they kind of let her believe that she would be taken care of by them and not to worry, but it was all very deceitful, and she got killed. So in Daniel eleven six, it says, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up with her attendants. Okay. So this is all kind of recap of last week, but I know we didn't have everybody here. And then from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. And we're pretty sure that's Ptolemy Eurigides, who was Bernice's brother. And he's going to want to avenge his sister's death. And he shall carry off to Egypt. He shall come against the army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, shall deal with them, and shall prevail. And I think that there's a reason he prevailed, and I think it's divine in origin, because Antiochus had done a wicked thing to put his wife away and marry Bernice. So now it's just desserts time. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the kingdom of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So there's this constant struggle between the north and the south. So <clears throat> there's going to be after Ptolemy Eurigides, 46 year reign after his death, um, the two sons of Seleucus Callinicus, the son of Antiochus Theos, they will try to recover their kingdom of Egypt and they will stir up against the fourth Ptolemy, Philopater. And he's the one I told you about that killed his parents, so they called him Philopater as a ridicule because he was absolutely the opposite of that, not a lover of parents, but a killer of parents. And his people didn't like him very much. Okay. And the angel says that they shall be provoked and shall lead a multitude of great armies and Antiochus the Great had 70,000 footmen. So now, back to the northern kingdom. So we had Antiochus Theos. He's number two, the one that married Bernice, his, the second wife, the daughter of the Ptolemy. And Antiochus Theos has these two sons, Seleucus and Antiochus Hyrus. And Callinicus, 
uh, the one that murdered Bernice, he had two sons, Seleucus Serranus and Antiochus III, also called the Great. So this is going to be the next main ruler of the northern kingdom. Antiochus the Great, the third, son of Seleucus Callinicus, first son of Antiochus II Theos, the one that married Bernice. So if you see the descent, son, grandfather, son, son. Now, <clears throat> Antiochus III the Great was really the second son, but something happens to Seleucus Serranus, and he doesn't really take the first son type role in the kingdom. So the rest of this part of 11 is a lot about Antiochus III. It says his son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, keep coming and overflow and pass through, and the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north, Antiochus. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. So Egypt's still sustained in the battle. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, he shall be, and she'll cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail, for the king of the north shall again raise a multitude, greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with great army and abundant supplies. And in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fail. And this is a very interesting part of the dynamic at this time. And I'm going to see if I can read this section. Um, not all the Judeans were righteous. Let's get back to the keeping of the law. There was a bad lot. And some of the lot worked in the temple. So this story that's very, very interesting, and I'm hoping I can get through it. Um, it says, when the holy city was inhabited in all peace and the laws were observed as perfectly as possible, through the piety of Onias, the high priest, and his hatred of wickedness. This is 2 Maccabees 3. It came about that the kings themselves honored the holy place and enhanced the glory of the temple with the most splendid offerings, even to the extent that Seleucus, king of Asia, defrayed from his own revenues all the expenses arising out of the sacrificial services. But a certain Simon of the tribe of Bilga, on being appointed administrator of the temple, came into conflict with the high priest over the regulation of the city markets. It's always about money, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And unable to get the better of Onias, he went off to Apollonus of Tarsus, who at that time was military commissioner of Salo, Syria, and Phoenicia, and made out to him that the treasury in Jerusalem was groaning with untold wealth. That the amount contributed was incalculable and out of all proportion to expenditure needed for the sacrifice but that it could all be brought under the control of the king. And Apollonius met the king and told him about the wealth that had been disclosed to him, whereupon the king selected Heliodorus, his chancellor. Okay, so this actually takes place under the rule of Seleucus, who was son of Antiochus the Great. The purpose is to show that all is not well with the Judeans and how they interacted with these Syrian kings. So the high priest explained that the funds were set aside for widows and orphans, with some belonging to Heraconus, son of Tobias, a man occupying a very exalted position. So it was almost like the treasury in the temple was almost like the Bank of America for them, right? Yeah, yeah. So the wealthy people kept their money there too. <clears throat> and it said that, you know, it was not what the evil Simon had alleged. And it amounted to four talents of silver and 200 of gold. And he added that it was entirely out of the question that an injustice should be done to those who had put their trust in the Bank of America. Mm 
<laughs> but Heliodorus, the chancellor, because of instructions from the king, preemptorily insisted that the funds must be confiscated for the royal escher. Fixing a day for the purpose, he went in to draw up the inventory of the funds. So now, I have to be brief because of our time. He had already arrived with his bodyguard near the treasury when the sovereign of spirits and of every power caused so great an apparition that all who dared to accompany Heliodorus were dumbfounded at the power of God and reduced to abject terror. Before their eyes appeared a horse, richly caparisoned and carrying a fearsome rider. Rearing violently, it struck Heliodorus with its forefeet. The rider was seen to be accounted entirely in gold. Two other young men of outstanding strength and radiant beauty, magnificently apparelled, appeared to him at the same time and taking their stand on either side of him, flogged him unremittingly, inflicting stroke after stroke. And suddenly he us, fell to the ground, enveloped in thick darkness. He then came to his rescue and placed him in a, lit in a litter. And this man who but for a moment had made his way into the treasury, as we said above, was with great retinue and his whole bodyguard. And as they carried him away, powerless to help himself, they openly acknowledged the sovereign power of God. And while he lay prostrate under the divine visitation, a speechless and bereft of all hope and deliverance, the Jews blessed the Lord who had miraculously glorified his holy place. Wouldn't it be interesting to see that happen? Yeah. And then the high priest, afraid that the king might suspect the Jews of some foul play concerning Heliodorus, did indeed offer a sacrifice for the man's recovery. And while the high priest was performing the rite of atonement, the same young man appeared again to Heliodorus, wearing the same apparel and standing beside him. Be very grateful, they said to Onias the high priest, since it is for his sake that the Lord has granted you your life. And as for you who have been scourged from heaven, you must proclaim to all men the grandeur of God's power. And Heliodorus offered sacrifice to the Lord, made solemn vows to the preserver of his life, and took courteous leave of Onias and marched his forces back to the king. He openly testified to all men of the works of the supreme God, which he had seen with his own eyes. And when the king asked Heliodorus what sort of man would be the right person to send Jerusalem on a second occasion, he said, if you have some enemy or a rebel against the government, send him and you will get him back well flogged. <laughs> if he survives at all. For there is certainly some peculiar power of God about that place. And he who has the dwelling in heaven watches over the place and defends it. Isn't that an interesting story? Yeah. So anyways, that's, um, that's, uh, there were opportunists. 2 Maccabees, three, yeah. Maccabees chapter three, 3 about Heliodorus, who was the chancellor of the son of Antiochus the Great. But to give you an idea how the, there were opportunists trying to take advantage of what was going on. So we're going to pick it up there. I'm in no rush because I love this part of the Bible. Yeah. And it's so, yeah. <laughs> and um, I think, Murray, maybe you could close us because I think it's time quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this uh, update and, and excerpt from uh, the, this book of Daniel. We thank you again, once again, Lord, for uh, this Mother's Day. We we recognize the importance that uh, of our mothers and, and uh, how significant that you even brought your son into our our Lord and Savior into the world uh, through a natural birth. So we, we we admire and respect our mothers today, and we thank you again for uh, the study that we have in and Daniel and and how it might uh, encourage us to uh, be faithful to you and be and to your word. We ask the this is in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I like the. You like the what?
You have been listening to Bible Study Verse by Verse with Vicki Mulak. For more of these podcasts and some resources, please go to our website at www.biblestudyvbv.org. O-R-G. That's www.biblestudy, V as in Victor, B as in boy, V as in Victor. The VBV stands for verse by verse. .org, O-R-G. There you can register and contact us or just leave a comment. We welcome your feedback. Thank you. This is George Mulek.